Well, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church, and most weeks I have the joy to open up God's Word. Um, for the next, actually, um, seven weeks, I have the joy to preach through our Explore God series, and I want to tell you a little bit about that because this is an opportunity um, for us to go through the seven biggest questions that non-Christians have about the Christian faith. Um, honestly, these are seven huge questions that many non-Christians have about life in general, um, especially if you've grown up in America or anywhere we're in the world where Christianity was a central part of that civilization or culture. Uh, these are questions that are ringing strong and true. Um, for those of you who are here and you are a believer in Jesus already, um, these are questions that you need to be able to answer with simplicity, clarity, and helpfulness. Um, we have a tendency to sometimes bring more confusion to people's questions, and, and the Word of God gives us unusual clarity about some of these most important things. And so over the next seven weeks, our desire is to serve you. It is to help you. Um, if you've got questions, um, we love questions. In fact, we designed an entire podcast that is set aside just for your questions. And so throughout this uh, seven weeks, um, you'll see at the bottom of all the slides, it says this, got sermon cues, text VC sermon to 555-888. And so what happens when you text 555-888 is it opens up a text thread, and anytime you text anything technically to that thread, we get it. Um, but it is a thread designed for your questions, not your feedback. <laughs> uh, if you want to give us feedback, we love that. Uh, you will, we're happy to sit down with you anytime. Um, but feel free to pull out your phones anytime during the message. Just text uh, VC Sermon 555-888. And uh, what happens, though, is um, every Wednesday, Pastor Tim and I and Pastor Craig, who's preaching the same um, series here at Village Church East, our church plant, um, we go into the studio and we record... Um, um, our Q&A podcast, but Wednesday's episodes are going to be devoted to all of the questions that you all submit. So tune in on Wednesday. Here's what's going to happen when you text VC Sermon to 555-888. You're going to get a text back, and it's going to give you a direct link to the podcast, so you don't have to work too hard to find it. So it'll be right there on your phone. And uh, so this is an opportunity that where we really do want to invite all of your questions. I cannot guarantee you that Tim and I or Craig will have great answers, but doggone it, we will try to the best of our ability to honor you and honor your questions and hopefully help you think about, honestly, what are some of the most difficult um, subjects that we are dealing with right now. Um, if you've got kids and grandkids, by the way, um, you got to figure out how to give away good, helpful, truthful answers to them on these questions as well. And so the question for today, it's very simple. It is, does my life have a purpose? What is the purpose of my life? And there's a few things actually that I know about purpose. Um, number one is this. I know that without it, we struggle. Um, have you ever noticed your children are always asking why, 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 why? Uh, I've learned that apparently I don't give enough purpose to my children because they ask the question over and over and over again. Um, I imagine a boss sitting out the employee and giving arbitrary directives, and the employee says, why am I doing this? And then the boss says, because I said so. How many of you are motivated uh, in life by because I said so? There's something about purpose that motivates us, that drives us. In fact, it's a, it seems to be a human impulse that without it, we don't function well. Uh, you give me a job to do without purpose, very few humans will do it well or do it over, over the long haul. The second thing I know about purpose is it's not just uh, difficult without it, but number two, I know this, that it necessarily, and I need you to use your brains with me for a moment, it necessarily implies design. And if it necessarily implies design, it requires a designer. 
the moment that you attribute some kind of purpose to human existence, you're automatically implicating that there is a designer. And so the question of purpose is actually one that necessarily brings you to the discussion of spirituality and God. If you sit at like your Thanksgiving table, your dinner table with all like your extended family, right? And you tell them, let's talk about the purpose of life. What are you talking about? You're talking about why something or someone designed you, created you meticulously, specifically, and it always, almost always goes to a spiritual question and it begins to be a discussion about God. So whenever I know we talk about purpose, we're always talking about something divine. We're always talking about the supernatural and the bigger things. But here's the third thing I know about purpose is that it's actually a petrifying question for most. Uh, Because when you do imagine you're 70 years old and your grandson is 25, your grandson becomes a Christian and says to you, can we talk about the purpose of life? I want you to imagine being 70 years old for a moment. And your grandson tells you that the purpose of life is to know God and love him. Let's say that's what he says. And for 70 years of your life, you have not done the very thing you were created and designed to do. The implications of purpose are staggering. And I'm telling you that there is a defense mechanism inside of most people that when the the subject of purpose comes up, we shut down We get busy, we distract ourselves, because here's the implication, and by the way, the older people get, the harder it is for them to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna tell you why. Because the older you get, the more years are behind you that you may have to look back and say, I was wrong. And that, particularly for men, or particularly for prideful people, or for people who who have all the answers, right? That is a really, really hard thing. And so whenever I talk about purpose with anybody, even in this sermon, I want you to know that I am particularly probably sensitive to the weight of the discussion. And so one of my jobs for the next three hours while I preach, that's a joke. uh, (laughs) One of my jobs, though, is to not let you get away from the question. This is going to be a time where for a while we're just going to laser beam focus on purpose. And for some of you, it's going to be uncomfortable, and I am okay with that. I don't mind awkward. I don't mind weird. Because if what we're going to talk about today is true, you can't afford to look away. You can't afford to busy yourself or to look at your phone the whole time I'm preaching, not because you're texting 555-888 with life's greatest and most profound questions, right? Um, but because you can't handle maybe even the discussion. Um, here's what I know about a lot of people. Like they think, because like, I'm a, a preacher, I'm a pastor, um, they think I'm about to start yelling or I'm going to rebuke them. Actually, what I want to do is just open up a conversation. Um, I tell people who are not Christians, when you come to a church, um, don't assume that the pastor wants to convert you or believes he can. Um, why don't you try to empathize and figure out what do these people believe about purpose? That would actually be a really valuable discussion. Uh, because if there is a designer and we're onto something, you definitely want to take it into consideration and consider it. Most people, when they're looking for purpose, though, are asking two questions. And here are the two questions they're asking. Number one, what is my religion? When you think about purpose, it usually goes to religion. And here's what they're saying. What set of rules can I follow to make the big guy upstairs and me okay? Like, what are the rules? What are the parameters? Like, what can I do to make sure that God and I are doing all right? And then when we talk about purpose, most people, whether you realize it or not, these are the questions your soul in this culture is asking. The second question is this, how can I be significant? 
Uh, I don't want my life to be meaningless. I want to leave a mark. I want to do something. I want my legacy uh, to, to reverberate for, for generations. And don't get me wrong, uh, these aren't bad questions, uh, but here's what I want to submit to you. I don't think these are the best questions if you're trying to discern purpose. So if there's a designer and he has a design for you, a purpose for you, um, I actually think these questions can begin to lead you astray. I, I want to actually shift gears and I want to share with you two questions that I think if you can answer these two questions will, will be tremendously, tremendously helpful for you. And in fact, here's what I like to tell people. I like to tell people, you don't have one purpose in life, you have two purposes. And if you don't get both of these purposes right, you will live functionally a purposeless life. And so here's, here's the first question I want you to answer about your first purpose. Who am I made for? It's not what religion, what set of rules. This is the question, the fundamental primary question about purpose. Who am I? I made for. Uh, the Bible's vision or version or understanding of purpose is that purpose is fundamentally relational and not duty driven. It is fundamentally about a relationship between a God and his people. It's fundamentally about that. But here's what happens in American culture. We say, what rules do I need to follow? And it's like the Bible just breaks that open and says, oh, can we just get to a better question? Who were you made for? Religion is very different than relationship. And by the way, as you engage people who are not believers, they don't know intuitively, neither do we, by the way, as Christians, how to separate the two. And it's our job to have a vocabulary that allows us to say, no, what is fundamentally different is God, different is God didn't make you for religion and rules. He made you for relationship. That is a simple vocabulary tool that every human needs to understand. And you get this also intuitively because when you have a child, you don't say, you were created for rules. Like, that's pathetic, and that is an abusive mother or father, and yet most of our visions of God are, make him out to be a megalomaniac, abusive dad who beats his children. And that is not the vision of the fatherhood of God that we see in Scripture. In fact, when you have a child, the question that they should be asking is, who's my dad? Who loves me? And you're made for fundamentally relationship over religion and rules. That's the first question. Number two, the second question is this. What am I made to do? This is a matter of calling. This is a matter of temperament, of gifting, of how personality, of how you're wired. By the way, um, you don't need to be a Christian or a non-Christian to have a calling on your life. We're going to watch that unfold this morning. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I, I want to introduce you to three biblical characters, uh, and I'm going to look at their, their lives through the lens of the perspective of purpose. Um, two of these characters, um, these are stories given by God, and these stories have reverberated through millennia to basically put on the table what happens when you get one of two questions wrong about purpose. Uh, the third person I want to share with you is somebody who um, actually discovered the truth of who Jesus Christ was, uh, and he brought these two questions together, and then the sum result was a man who actually changed the world. And so the first person I will look at is, is the person of Solomon. And Solomon was the king of Israel. Pop quiz, uh, Village Church. Solomon's dad was king 
David. I didn't know if some of you were going to say Jesus, because that's like the only answer you're supposed to give in church. Uh, If you have a Bible, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter one, but you're going to kind of jump in chapters one, two, or three. Um, So open up your Bibles there. I'll put the verses on the screen so you can see them, Uh, but I want to draw out a thread in the beginning chapters of Ecclesiastes for you. The entire book of Ecclesiastes was written to show us the result of knowing your calling, but not your creator. Of knowing why you were placed on this earth, but are not with or in right relationship with, sorry, who you were made for. Uh, This is about knowing what you were made to do, but you're not in right relationship with the one you were made for. And Solomon's life is so pathetic and so tragic. The guy had everything he could ever need to know who his God was, to know who he was made for, and then to live into his calling. And what you see in Solomon's life is he neglected his God his whole life. He put his God on the back burner. His God was optional. In fact, for most of his life, God was not even a part of the regular discussion of his life. And in fact, it's not to the very end of his life when it seems that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that he begins to really understand that when you don't know who you're made for, but you know what you're called to do, it's a disastrous, disastrous byproduct. And I think this is actually the story of many, many, many Americans who don't know who they were made for. Uh, They might know who God is. They might even somewhere in the recesses of their brain believe in Jesus, but they have no right relationship with him. There's no dynamic relationship with God, but you know your calling. Like, if I were to ask you, what were you made to do in this earth? Like, you could talk about it. You have clarity about your strengths and your personality and and the things you're good at and the things you're not and the kind of things you should engage, but you don't know who your God is. Like, that's not nailed down yet. And this is an incredible story. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. He says this at the very beginning of the book, um, which kind of just sets all of this up. Actually, go to verses um, 2 and 3 with me on the screen. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of, I don't know if it's on there, but if it's not on there, it's in your Bibles. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And and this word vanity comes up all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and it means vapor. It, It means that as he looks back over his life, here's kind of like the meaning of life. It's vapor. Vapor of vapors. Like a vapor is just so quick. It's here and it's gone. And here's what he says when he looks back over his life. It wasn't just vapor. It, it, was, like, it, it was like the smallest version of vapor. It was vapor of vapor. Vanity of vanities. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Now imagine getting to the end of your life. And this is your conclusion. Everything I've ever done is meaningless. I mean, this is actually one of the saddest stories. And one of the, one of the realities that Solomon is trying to get through to us is that this end for your life is not necessary. That to get to the end of your life and say everything that I have done has been functionally meaningless is not something that needs to be the story that you tell at the end of your life. He said in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Look at verses 9 in chapter 2, 9 to 11. He says this, so I became great By the way, wealthiest man who ever lived up to this point, maybe in all of human history. I became great. I surpassed all. Like for some of you, like your purpose is to be better than the person next to you, right? It's to be better than the guy you work with. It's to be a better mom than the person who lives down the road from you or on Facebook, right? It's just to be better. Um, And here's what Solomon says. I've been better. Like I achieved that. I did that. I've been better than everybody else. I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Also, my wisdom remained with me. You guys know, if you know anything about Solomon, he was the wisest man who ever lived next to Jesus Christ. He had an unbelievable supernatural wisdom. Verse 10 goes on and says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Like you think maybe that like all the pleasures of this world will satisfy these empty places of your heart. By the way, this is a story of many of you in this room. You've tried this pathway, it doesn't work. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. I want, I want you to watch this, because he's really honest about this. Did Solomon love his job? What's the answer? Yes, absolutely. For many, many years, he loved his job. He was able to build, build, transform. He was able to change civilizations, communities, countries, cities. I mean, you want to talk about a legacy? Solomon would leave a legacy in Israel and Jerusalem and around the world in a profound way. And, and, and here's the challenge. In the middle of his life, he loved his job. His job made him happy. But if Solomon could speak to the Solomon at the end of his life, the Solomon at the end of his life would have some serious questions and conversations with Solomon in the middle of his life. And here's what I know. For many people, you are satisfied with work and all the toil because you're building, you're doing your dream, you're living, you're calling. But here's the deal. This God box, it's not checked yet. Things aren't right over here. And you're going to be tempted to push that box away, but here's the deal. Like, you're happy because you're building, you're doing, you're, you're in your calling, you're, you're being who God made you to be, and this is, this is where he was at. But then there was a breaking point for Solomon that I think is really, really important, and it starts with three words. Then I considered. The moment you stop in all of your toil and all of your work and all of your calling, and all of your purpose, and all of your energy, and you just stop and think, the results can be devastating, which is why most people at this point pick up their phone, or they go back to work. Because to go down the pathway of thoughtfulness is one of the most dangerous places to go when you have calling, and that's nailed down, but you don't have the God box checked off yet. L- listen, to what, listen to what he says. And by the way, for some of you, I dare you to go deeper into the questions that he's raising. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. You know that, like, uh, that, that cliche <laughs> that when uh, a guy gets to the end of his life, he looks back and says, man, if you could do something differently, what would it be? By the way, like, studies have been done on this, and the same answers are always, I would have spent more time with my family, I would have forgiven more, you know, like all these things, and I would have, like, it's all the same stuff. There's always all of these regrets. When you get to the end, everything else earlier in life just gets clarity. Like, I, I, don't, I personally don't want to be the guy that gets to the end and then does it all wrong. I'd rather, like, listen to, like, the me that's about to die now and do things differently. Like, in my brain, that feels like the best thing to do. All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I have a love-hate relationship with Legos. I'm going to tell you why. (laughs) Not only um, are they so frustrating when you step on them 
and you don't know they're on the ground. If you have a wood floor, by the way, and you step on them, they can scratch your wood floor. That's super annoying. Um, not only is it annoying when you take the whole box of Legos that like thousands of dollars were spent on buying like the Lego boat and the Lego house and the Lego this with everything. You, you build it once, you dump it in, and now it's like a part of this blob that you'll never build it ever again, right? You dump it all out, and then there's all like the extra goodies you find in your Lego box, like the piece of paper, that old crayon, the pennies from way back when. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The Lego box, right? Uh, and then you tell your kids to clean it up, and lo and behold, like, there's like still 20 pieces left. They're all really small. I mean, okay, so love-hate relationship with Legos. But there is one part of Legos that I love. Okay? The part that I love is you see the picture on the box, and your heart as like a little boy and little girl says yes. I'll, I'll be honest. I still, when I go to the toy section with my kids, I'm like, I could build that. Like 10,000 pieces, $700, I got that. I can nail that down. And... Uh, and there's something about it that is just really like, it, it creates all this vision inside of me. And, and I'm like, yes. And so the process is a blast, right? Until you lose for about three hours that one piece, that's really annoying. But um, that's like the time when you went astray in your life, right? Then you came back, so that's a metaphor. Um, so then you're building, right? And you're hours and hours and hours. And, and I have all these dreams. And, and honestly, like, let me, if I could just be really honest with you about why I like to build Legos, because I wanted other people to say, that's amazing. That's it. And what's interesting, too, is that I found with my children, there's actually nothing different. Dad, look what I made. Like, that's the pinnacle. Like, that's it. Like, that's, this is, like, all there is, okay? Now, here's, let me tell you what happens. You make it, and you're done, and there's, like, this dopamine rush, and you're like, I'm awesome. Everyone will love me. My life from this point on will never be the same. I have conquered this Lego, and then your dad or your mom, they see it and they're, you know, like, oh, yeah, you're so adorable. We love you. Good job. You're gifted and talented and better and smarter than every other kid on the planet, I'm sure, right? Here's a participation award. Okay. Then, <laughs> then you have the problem of what do I do with it, right? Hmm. So I walk away and inevitably the wing breaks off the plane, the sail breaks off the boat, the roof breaks off the house, Right? And then the pieces start to scatter, and then I finally say to my children, we paid $45 for this thing, put all the pieces back together, and then, and then right, somebody has the bright idea. This hasn't happened in my house, but I had three older brothers, like, I get this world. Let's glue it so that it never falls apart. Okay, sounds good. Now it becomes even more useless. So then, here's what my kids do, at least. They put it on a shelf to sit. And then after about a week, the friends come in and say, look at my Lego thing. And their friends are not nearly as impressed as mom and dad are, of course. And then it sits there, and then it gets dust. And then it gets more dust. And then it gets more dust. And then you say, I need a bigger Lego set. I'm going to build the 700-piece Lego. And then the same rhythm happens. Wow, that's so good. It just takes more time, more hard effort. You're by yourself. You don't do it with anybody else, right? Whenever you build it with somebody else, like, stop it, you're doing it wrong. It's not fast enough. It's taking you so long, right? It's like a solo player game, okay? And then you get to the bigger one and the bigger one. And this is honestly what life is like for most people. And if we could just be honest for two seconds, this is what we're doing with our lives. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've built. And when you do the thing you're made to do, Without a sense of who you're made for, all of it is incongruous and it doesn't work. Don't get me wrong, though. Here's the problem. It works for a time, and this is what Solomon found. It works for a while. When you're building a Lego set, my daughter zones. 
She is happy. She's not bored. She's not discontent. She's not worried about the purpose of life. She is doing what she's made to do. By the way, when you see somebody do what they're made to do, it's a beautiful thing. Even if it's just seasonal or in this thing, when you see a human doing things that humans do, created in the image of God, creating and designing or building or whatever else, all these like God uh, 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 things that he puts inside of us, God-like qualities that he does, and so we do them in smaller ways. Whenever you see these things, you're like, that's beautiful. But then it's done, and it's like Legos. It just sits on a shelf, and all you have the option to do is distract yourself to not talk about how it was a complete waste of money. And if you could take that money now and spend it on something else, you absolutely would. The problem is you just spend it on bigger Legos. And this is what I found most adult humans are like. And this is really sad to me because I feel like there's something more. And I think inside you know there's something more. But instead of looking at the reality of this and saying, maybe don't buy bigger Legos because the end is the same no matter how big the project The end is the same. I look at it. I look at my parents. They say, good job. My friends go, eh, and it sits on a shelf. This is the American dream. And God breaks into the American dream and says, I think there might be maybe something a little bit bit better. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, here's what he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Is that what he felt in the process, by the way? No, in the process, he loved it. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Work, 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 work. Look at me, look at me. And then somebody else takes it. Not having worked for it, done anything to deserve it. It's all gone. You're no longer part of the equation. They get all of it. And trust me, I think you know this. If you didn't work for it, do you appreciate it? It's called entitlement. If you didn't work for it, you don't appreciate it in the same way. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, statistically fools. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. This is why I tell you, don't think too hard about your purpose. Because this is the end result if you don't have some other things in order. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Thinking genuinely about purpose, if you have the sense of calling, let let me be clear about Solomon, he was a builder. This is what he was made to do. He was a leader. He was made to take groups and peoples and civilizations and and exponentially 10x, 100x, 1,000x grow them. That is his unique gifting and calling in life. And he walked into it, and he was incredible at it. But if you have that down, and you don't have the God box checked off, you have three options. And the first is what he went to, which is despair. There's this um, really interesting theological question for all you Bible geeks out there. And here's the question. Is Solomon going to heaven or not? Towards the end of his life, by the way, he's worshiping the false gods of Moloch and Chemosh. And he's sacrificing firstborn children to the fires of these pagan gods. Like This is how he ends his life. And so there's actually legitimate questions about whether or not when you get to heaven, you're ever going to meet Solomon because his life was devoted to false gods of foreign women. That's a whole other fun question, but here's what I can say to you. Whatever's going on inside of him, he knew who God made him to be, but he didn't have the God box checked off in the way that he needed to. That's the first option is you go to despair when you realize that when you die, this is it. 
The honest atheist should land in despair. I don't know how they don't. I don't get it. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. I'd love to have that conversation with you. But if I were you, I would be saying the very same things that Solomon is saying. The second reaction, if you have the calling thing down, but you don't have the God box checked off, is distraction. Phones, busyness, work, toil. And this is what Solomon did for the vast majority of his life. He did not have both boxes checked with regard to purpose. And so he distracted himself. More and more work, more and more work, more and more work. And the third, final response is you run to deity. You try to figure out and explore God. Who is he? Now here, here is the, the challenge for most people in this room. If, if you're a believer, we're going to talk about you in just a minute, but like if you're not a believer, you've got to figure out whether or not you're going to face the question, and if you will, you do have three Ds to respond to, despair, distraction, or deity, and you have to pick at that point. Many people land in despair. Most people land in distraction. But the ones who actually pursue the God for whom which they were made, there's a powerful, powerful life transformation that is awaiting for you. Second character that I want to talk about, Samson. Uh, When you think of Samson, you think big, strong, manly, hair, Delilah, right? The story of Samson was written to show us the result of knowing your creator but ignoring your calling of knowing who you were made for, but not pursuing why you were placed on this earth. Before Samson was even born, he was set apart by God for God. He had a a purpose that was unbelievably crystal clear. And actually, before Samson was born, uh, this is a crazy little interesting Bible fact, Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate, pre-Christmas Jesus, if you will, shows up and has an incredible conversation with Samson's mom and dad. And in the Old Testament, whenever you see the, quote, angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, who before he was born as a baby, because remember, he's eternally preexistent, Jesus shows up and has a profound conversation with them. And listen to what happens in Judges 13, chapter 5, or verse 5. Jesus says, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Doesn't it sound like Christmas, by the way? You shall conceive and bear a son. But no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And a Nazarite was a special vow um, that people would make, and there were restrictions they had in their lives. And Nazarite lives were set apart for God and for ministry and for calling and whatever the Lord would tell them to do. To be a Nazarite was a very special thing which God designated you and set you apart. It says this, he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, I don't know about y'all, but I would absolutely love if Jesus sat down with my mom and dad and said, let me tell you why I'm creating Michael. This is his overarching purpose and mission in life. Like, this is, this is what I want him to do. And this is that calling thing that we're talking about, right? Solomon knew his calling, okay? Now, here's the deal. Samson knew his calling. Like, this was crystal clear. God himself came down, told his parents, this is why I'm designing this kid. This is what it's all about. Verse 7 says, behold, you shall, sorry, verse 12 says this. His dad asked Jesus a question. Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And I love this phrase. What is his mission, right? What is his mission? What is his purpose? And and, and at this point, which is very funny in the narrative, Jesus doesn't answer. Why? Duh, because I already told you. Were you listening? No. His purpose is to begin the process of saving the Israelites from the Philistines, this oppressive, marauding, vile, ugly group of people that made the people of God's life miserable for years and centuries. Okay? 
His, his calling is that he's going to begin to release the people of God. That's why I have created him. But despite his clear calling of which he knew, despite the fact that this Nazarite vow was all over his life, he wasn't allowed to eat in certain things and drink wine, a bunch of different things. Like He wasn't allowed to cut his hair. There were things that you weren't allowed to do as a Nazarite. Like His calling was all over his body every day of his life. Everywhere he went, he wouldn't, couldn't forget his calling. But his whole life, he just blatantly ignored it. He had this like God box thing checked, if you will. Like him and God had a relationship, but he just blatantly over and over ignored his call. It was very frustrating. It seems Solomon didn't have the God box checked. Samson did. Like there was a clear God concept. There was a clear faith that Samson had, but he just ignored it. Let me give you like an overview of his life to give you like a category of how massively he missed his calling. He lied to his parents, caused them to sin. He, he got angry, it seemed, regularly, and then killed people for it. Not for righteous reasons, but because they wronged him. He married a Canaanite woman, forbidden by God and his parents, completely out of bounds with the Nazarite vow that he made. Constantly broke his Nazarite vow, even joked about it with godless people. He was constantly driven by unchecked emotions, slept around, lied without hesitation, betrayed others regularly, and in turn was betrayed. And his final act, which I think could have been an amazing act, where he prays to God and says, Lord, give me the strength to tear down this building and kill all these terrible Philistines. Even then, the prayer turns into a prayer of vengeance. Because they gouge out his eyes. He's like, let me get back at them. Give me the strength to have vengeance. Even his final prayer is just self-serving. And you have this, this story of, of this guy who, listen, the guy prayed. The guy had a God, God concept. Um, the guy, like, believed that he was going to go to heaven. The guy believed he was a follower of God. But his whole life was just aimless, driven by emotions, one experience to the next, one experience to the next. And it's nauseating to read this. And I'm going to be honest with you all. This is what I find with so much of the American church. Uh, if the point of Solomon is, is really to help people understand who don't believe in God yet but have a clear sense of calling, the point of Samson is to say, those of you who believe in God but don't have a clear sense of calling, that, that are just living aimlessly, that are living by instinct and passion and emotion, and you're like, well, I'm going to heaven because I prayed a prayer when I was like four years old or eight years old, but now it seems to have very little impact on your life. Samson is like the story of so many Christians that I know. He would make an incredible consumer Christian who'd sit in the back, sing the songs, never give, never serve, run off, do their own thing, and then come back, and he's good because he goes to church on Sunday. And then God has a really clear calling on his life, and he just abandons it. That's so gut-wrenching to read. Uh, as we look at Samson, I just want to look at the believers in Jesus Christ in this room and say, don't you want more than that? It's interesting how you can be a Christian but feel like your life is purposeless. It's interesting how you can have Jesus, the one you were made for, but feel like you're making no impact and you're not doing anything of importance. This is the story of so many believers that I see. And so we're supposed to have the answer, by the way, what's the purpose in life? Oh, it's God. That is a great answer, and that is the foundation. And if you get that wrong, you get nothing else ultimately right. But what comes after that is there is a reason God made you. And you need to know who you were made for and what you were made to do. And you need to have a clear sense of God. And this sense of calling can shift, for sure, from season to season. But there is something that God has made you to do that builds his kingdom. Samson is the story of a guy who accidentally fell into doing one or two great things. 
And this is how most Christian legacies are created. I trusted in Jesus Christ, we're good, everything's fine, I'm gonna follow my instincts and passions, a broken clock is right twice a day, I did two great things in my life, there's my legacy. And yet throughout your life, you know something's missing, something isn't right, I just feel like my relationship with God isn't dynamic, I feel like this, I'm made for more, and, and I just wanna be honest, as I talk to most American Christians, I wanna say, you are. You are made for more. There is a discontent in you, and I want to validate that, and I, I would love to see you discern, maybe with a little more clarity, why God designed you the way he did for his kingdom. How did God design you? Because he did it in a way that is to build the kingdom of God. Imagine if Solomon, with all the purpose and clarity, had a heart that submitted to God. Could you imagine the unbelievable good he could have done? And can you imagine actually how different the world might be today. Imagine Samson. He had the God box checked off. Imagine if this guy used his unbelievable strength and power with integrity and faithfulness to God and his word. Imagine how many more Philistines would be dead and the people of God could have been freed quicker. Imagine what if. Last story. I call him Saul Paul because originally his name was Saul, but then he got transformed into Paul. But when he's telling the story, he's He's talking about the season when his name was Saul, but as he's telling the story, he's Paul. It's kind of confusing, but Saul, Paul. There we go. Not King Saul, New Testament Saul. The story of Saul is about a man who knew his calling, but then discovered his creator, who knew why he was placed on this earth, but came to life when he discovered who he was made for. Here's the thing I think is, is really great. Some people like will say, uh, no, you can't really know what you're called to do until you become a Christian. I don't buy that at all, actually. Like, Saul had a few things that just were unbelievably unique about him way before he became a Christian. Uh, his temperament was passionate. He was blunt. He was fearless. He was all in. Like, these qualities didn't change. Like, personality stayed the same from before being a Christian to afterwards. Like, anybody who knew him knew this. You're made to fight. You are made to build. You are made to stand up for justice. You're made to, like, throw your body on the line for other people. You're made to suffer and do the hard thing for a greater cause. Like, this is just how he is wired as a human being. And so he knew this, and, and Saul was a guy who lived his passion. He lived his calling. He built, he protected, he fought, he was passionate, he was all in, uh, but he didn't get the God box checked off right. He was missing something. He believed in God, etc., but he didn't have Jesus. And then he has this incredible moment. So here's what's happening. We turn with me to Acts chapter 22, and I want to tell you what's happening in this context. Um, there's a whole crowd of people that are trying to kill him, stone him. And there's a Roman, Roman tribunal who hears about this. And so they take Saul, and they try, this is Paul at this time now, and they try to protect him. And he says to them, can I talk to the people? Which is just so Paul, right? Can I talk to the people who are going to trying to kill me? And so they say, this will be interesting. Let's see what happens. So all these people are furious and raging. And, ah, we want to kill them. I mean, have you ever seen a crowd like wanting to kill someone, only on the TV for me. But like, rumor has it, I don't want to be the object of their anger. Okay, so they're angry. And so what happens is, is uh, he says, let me talk to them, and here's what, here's what he says. I was zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Empathy. I persecuted this way, that's what they call Christianity then. I persecuted this way to the death. 
binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Right, guys? I killed a whole bunch of Christians. I put them in jail, didn't I? Yes, he did. He is actually very zealous, right? Passion, blunt, energy, all in, all go, before he was a Christian, all the same. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And then he goes on to tell them how he met Jesus, or Jesus more accurately met him, and revealed himself to him on the way to Damascus. And go to verse 14. He tells the story about a guy named Ananias, who actually told him his life's purpose in the process of coming to Christ. And he said, Ananias to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, this is Ananias talking to the unconverted Saul. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I love that Paul tells his testimony, A, in front of like all these people are trying to kill him. And in the process of them trying to kill him, he calls them to trust in Jesus. Amazingly bold, unbelievably powerful. Who does that, right? From before Christ to after Christ, he just had this like calling on his life. It was so clear. The themes were there from the very beginning. And then the moment he checks this God box off and the two come together, it is a powerful force that changed the world in (laughs) unbelievable ways. There's something amazing that happens when you're able to answer the two questions with clarity. Who is that made for? God, through faith in Jesus Christ. What was I made to do? This is the part I can't answer for you. I can't tell you why you were made and placed on this earth specifically. I can tell you that if you are a human being and you're alive, you were made and designed to be in relationship, not religion, with God. And then once that box is checked, here's what I do know. I probably could spend enough time with you and figure out some of the unique qualities and characteristics that God has designed you with. And I could probably, with enough time, start to discern some of the big things that God might be calling you toward. Here's what I I do know. That when you have God without calling, you feel aimless. When you have calling without God, if you're honest, it's going to lead you to despair. And what I want to just submit to you is that my desire, my just strong encouragement would be bring these two worlds together. And if you really want purpose, the Bible breaks through human history, breaks into our moments. Again, you've had 43 minutes and 27 seconds without distraction, all right, ish, except you're in there. And now you have to kind of face this question. You haven't been been able to look away for some time. Will you trust in Christ? And then will you figure out why you're made? When these two things come together, watch. This is where the experience of purpose comes to life. And you were made for this. It's also why you will be probably in different ways discontent powerfully until you figure these two things out. Let me tell you, uh, as I close, like one of my, one of my desires as a dad. Um, Village Church, you've heard me say different things like this all the time, but for those of you who are new. I've got these three kids, and my heart more than anything wants them to know Jesus. So I want to tell them about Jesus. I can't make them believe. They've got to make a decision. And I want to honor all their questions, man. These, I mean, they're 10, 8, and 6, and I'm blown away by the questions they have. And these questions are going to get harder and thicker as life goes on. I want, to, I want my home and our church to be the safest place for the darkest, hardest questions. And so they're asking questions, and I'm trying to introduce them to Christ. And 
That's who I want them to know more than anything else. I tell them regularly, you're made for God. When they start going into this like rules-based relationship, I rebuke that regularly. I break that out of them because all of the culture's versions of of religions make it all about rules. And I'm like, listen, God's love for you isn't contingent on rules or obedience, okay? It's rooted in faith and his character and his covenant. Like God and you trust in Jesus and that is the most secure thing of your life. And so I'm trying to teach them that, but at the same time, what I'm trying to do with my children is I'm trying to speak vision into their life and purpose and calling out the qualities in their hearts and their souls and their personalities and their temperaments, and I'm trying to give them a pathway. I'm trying to watch the really beautiful, good things inside of them that they are passionate about, and I'm trying to send them on a trajectory where they can see that maybe God has made me for these things. And and I'm not scripting too carefully and clearly because I don't know the specific will of God. I didn't get like a revelation from Jesus. Your son will be this and your daughter will be that. Like, I don't have that for them right now. I wish I did. I wish Jesus would sit down with me like Samson's dad and mom and and tell Bree and I, like, here's why I made your children. That would, like, really help in child-rearing, would it not? But that's not the point. I guess the point is I'm developing qualities and characteristics and and, and I'm finding the fruit in the places where God is working and the things that are going well and the characteristics that are unique and meaningful that God can use these things and I'm trying to develop them. And as a pastor, it's very interesting because um, I get to meet a lot of people who um, they got the gospel down, but nobody's ever spoken vision and calling into their life. And I'm like, have you ever considered that you were made for more than this? Do you ever consider that like the emptiness that you're feeling has nothing to do with your church or your family or anything else? Like you've never had somebody end into your life and say, maybe this is what you were made for. Have you ever considered that like this is an option for you? And it's one of the things that actually like makes my heart the saddest is when you see an adult man or woman and no one's ever had a vision for their life. No one has ever looked at them and said, have you ever considered like you could, you could do this? You could, you could take that quality. You know, if that quality was harnessed and focused and stewarded well, it could culminate in this. And again, you don't have to apply it that way, but you just begin to create parameters for them. And so regularly talking to my children about, you do know that like with these qualities, these are some things that God could really do in your life. You know that like with this, like this, have you ever considered like this option? So like right now they want to be marine biologists. Don't know why, but that's like, right? I'm like, okay, we'll figure that out. But like beyond that, I'm ignoring their versions of their calling. And I'm like, do you know that like, I'm looking at my son and, and I'm looking at his unique characteristics. I'm like, what could God do with the tenderness and the violence? Like, how can we bring that together? <laughs> I say, if you got an idea, let me know. And, um, but, but when I see adults, I just want to give your soul a big hug sometimes because I'm like, man, and you, and you know what? Like, let's be honest. It's not intuitive for, for parents to speak vision into their kids. I'm going to be honest. It's a decision you have to make. But here's what I do want to say. Like, this is, I didn't plan this, but let me just go with it. Um, moms and dads, you might be 80. It's never too late to speak vision into your kids' lives. It's still the most powerful voice in their life, hands down. Um, older men and women, mentors, disciple makers. Um, if somebody looks up to you and respects you, your voice is unbelievably powerful. Find the fruit that God is bearing in their life. Speak into it. It's what people want. But I think so many people feel purposeless, even, even Christians, because they have no vision. They have no sense of calling. They're just on instincts and duty. And it's not the way God's made you. I want so much more. And uh, I can't do that for everybody. Paul, like, this is where like, that calling part of things, which I think for most in this room is probably the, the one that is just void. Um, you need someone in your life. And so I pray, God, would you give me somebody who can speak your vision into my life? Or Holy Spirit, would you, would you show me the Father's heart for me and maybe draw out and encourage me because I condemn myself so much? I don't know what that answer is, but... Um, I do know that in the church, there is a void of vision. 
And I do know that outside of the church, there's a void of God. And when we bring these two worlds together in this place, we can release people who have unbelievable purpose and unbelievable joy. What I'll do right now is I want to pray for you, and then we're going to celebrate communion together, and we're going to remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for revealing in your word who we were made for. I, do, I know every Sunday there are, just, there are people wrestling and trying to figure this thing out. I'm so glad they're here. I'm so glad they're willing to face the question. Some were brought here and they didn't know the question was going to be asked and they're regretting it. But, um, but if you are who you say you are and your word is accurate, we need to know who we were made for. And God, I think about so many in this room who have no sense of calling, of no fault of their own, to be honest. Just, just is, and I, but Lord, I do know that you, you want to reveal that. And, um, and so God, I pray that you would rise up, men and women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, brothers and sisters, who would have vision, your vision, your heart, your mind, see the quality, speak hope, not out of some self-help thing, but because we need purpose. I need to know who I'm made for, but I also know, I need to know what I'm made to do. And so God, what we see with almost every biblical character is that you show them who they were made for and you show them what they were made to do and, and now we have, to, we have to figure out how to bring these things together. Lord, I also know that when we talk about purpose, there's so much regret, so much. So what better time to come before you at communion and just be reminded by what communion represents that you have shed your blood, Jesus. And that for those who trust in you, all of our sins are forgiven. No one in this life has ever lived the most purposeful life ever. Only Jesus did that. But God, we all, we all desperately need forgiveness. And so thank you for what the cross represents to us. Thank you for what communion represents and what the cross accomplished for us. And so, God, as we celebrate communion, as we come to this, as we partake of these elements, I pray you would well up our hearts with sincere gratitude. Thank you for just being so good to us. We, we did not know what we needed, but you gave us exactly what we needed by the shedding of your son's blood. And I thank you that salvation isn't by works. It's by faith. Lord, we love you. We celebrate what you've done for us now. In Jesus' name, amen.